God of grace and God of glory, on your people pour your power. Crown thine ancient church's story, bring her bud to glorious flower. Grant us wisdom and grant us courage for the facing of this hour. May Jesus Christ be praised and glorified both now and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Last spring, a friend of mine sent me a jar of sourdough starter. Now, I'm not usually someone who tends to jump on bandwagons, but I was at that point looking for ways to occupy my time and at least temporarily distract myself from the chaos and uncertainty of the world around me. And so, like many people at that point in the pandemic, I began baking sourdough bread on a regular basis. Now, I've been a bread baker for a little while, but baking sourdough is a somewhat different experience. When you bake with active dry yeast, those little packets or jars from Red Star or Fleischmann's, you're in the driver's seat. <laughs> you get to decide when to activate the yeast and start the baking process. Sourdough starter, on the other hand, well, she tells you when it's time to bake bread. <laughs> Sourdough starter needs to be fed flour and water on a regular basis, and at some point you either have to use it or discard some. Otherwise, it overflows the jar or explodes <laughs> and makes a mess in the kitchen. Just ask Sarah Beth about that. As a result, you have to get into a pretty consistent bread-baking rhythm. I, for instance, bake bread every Saturday morning. And once I found my sourdough stride, as it were, the first couple of weeks were pretty wonderful. Imagine the scent of freshly baked bread permeating the house in those early morning hours. Imagine biting into a warm, tangy slice slathered in butter. It's really something. The only problem is that after a few weeks of this, you start to get tired of bread. <laughs> no matter how tasty it is, no matter how enjoyable or edifying the baking process is, the experience of having freshly baked bread every Saturday morning, well, it starts to lose something after a few weeks. There have been times that I've found myself resenting that mason jar on the counter. <laughs> wishing that I could just skip the whole process this week. And yet I know that if I want there to be bread at some point in the future, I need to go through that process of feeding my sourdough starter and baking a loaf of bread. Even when the novelty has worn off, I trust that there will be a moment soon when that loaf of bread will be something I look forward to once again. I mention all this because after the last couple of uh, weeks of gospel lessons, I'm kind of tired of bread. <laughs> Back in July, we heard John's account of Jesus feeding the multitude. That moment when our Lord took two loaves of bread and a couple of fish and miraculously shared them with an enormous crowd that had gathered in the wilderness. 
And every Sunday since, we have heard a gospel lesson in which Jesus talks about bread, explaining the significance of this event and confusing and challenging the people around him. Now, in part, this is a function of the fact that we heard John's version of the story back in July. The feeding of the multitude is one of the few events in the life of Jesus that is described by all four evangelists. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, well, they're content to let the event stand on its own. But John, in typical fashion, feels obligated to elaborate to explain to his audience why this happened and what it says about Jesus, the Word made flesh. And he does this for almost 50 verses in chapter 6. I suppose we should be grateful that the lectionary doesn't make us stand through that whole thing in one fell swoop. So it's worth asking, what is it that John wants us to understand about Jesus? From this passage. Why does Jesus talk about bread so incessantly? What does it mean for Jesus to be the true bread which comes down from heaven? Now throughout this 50-verse discourse in chapter 6, John sets up this dialectic, this tension between the manna that the people of Israel ate during their 40 years of wandering through the wilderness on one hand, and the true bread, which comes down from heaven, on the other. Now, in some ways, this is a bold rhetorical move. Remember, manna was a miraculous gift from God, provided to the Israelites when they were in dire need. We still refer to manna from heaven, when we receive sustenance in unexpected places. So the fact that John compares manna from heaven unfavorably to the true bread which comes down from heaven, well, it's kind of surprising, even offensive. It might help us understand the complaints of those who were listening to Jesus. And yet I wonder, is John's real intention to denigrate manna? Or is it to reframe and elevate our understanding of what God offers to us in Jesus Christ? In the Hebrew Bible, the appearance of manna is miraculous, and yet the people of Israel, frustrated with the length of their sojourn in the wilderness, the people of Israel eventually tire of eating it. They're sick of bread. One of my favorite examples of the Israelites complaining in the wilderness takes place in the book of Numbers when God's people tell Moses, there is no bread and there is no water and we detest this miserable food. It's the, this will sound familiar to anyone who has ever heard a teenager stand in front of a fully stocked refrigerator and say, there's nothing to eat in here! Despite the miracle of God's provision in the wilderness, despite the tangible sign of their redemption, this sign that they could take into their bodies and eat, the people of Israel grow weary 
of this manifestation of God's grace and mercy. This is why Jesus suggests that manna was an imperfect expression of God's grace. Not because it was inadequate in itself, but because God's people treated it that way. They wanted manna to be conformed to their desires. They want manna that met their expectations. Manna that reminded them of the flesh pots in Egypt when they were enslaved. Jesus, on the other hand, is the true bread. The true bread which comes down from heaven because he provides God's people what they actually need which is not necessarily what they want or desire. The wilderness generation wanted to experience God's grace on their own terms. Jesus reveals and reminds us that it is not grace unless it is on God's terms. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. We ask God to give us our daily bread. Scholars have spent a fair amount of energy trying to determine what exactly this means. And most likely, it is a reference to the rations that were part of a laborer's daily wage. By praying these words, in other words, we are asking God to give us what we need to make it through the day. What is striking to me is how generic this request is. We're not asking for a particular kind of bread. We're really not asking for anything specific at all. Our request presumes that God knows what we need. And we see a similar dynamic in the prayer of St. Chrysostom, which is part of morning prayer, which, by the way, we do every single weekday morning at 8.30 here in the chapel. Fulfill now, O Lord, our desires and petitions, as may be best for us. As may be best for us. Our call... And it's a challenging call, is to trust that God knows what is best for us. To recognize that the only way we can truly experience grace is on God's terms. Earlier this week, I heard a term that felt very descriptive of the way that people are experiencing the times we are living in. It certainly described me. Decision fatigue. (laughs) With the rise of the Delta variant, we are back to that place where every choice we make about what we do or how we spend our time feels enormously significant. And it's frustrating. Because it was pretty nice to have a few months in which deciding what to do on a given day felt less momentous. 
Nevertheless, here we are. And the temptation is to put ourselves in a place where we are saying, well, if only this were the case, everything would be fine. If only these people did what they were supposed to do, we wouldn't be in this mess. I can understand and even sympathize with this perspective. But I also recognize that it is the same perspective that that wilderness generation had. A belief that life should unfold on our terms. As we find ourselves once again overwhelmed with information and suggestions, I have to say, we will make the wrong decision at some point. It's human nature. There are simply too many factors, too many variables for us to get every single thing right. In fact, there are too many definitions of what right even is. When those missteps invariably happen, our call is to show each other a little grace and to accept the grace that God offers us. Always remembering that it is God who will provide us with what we need. 